warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies, with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here, with Stephen. Good morning, mate. Morning, mate. How are you doing? Very well. It's Father's Day, at, you know, at the time of recording, just to give listeners an idea of how far in advance we are. We're heading rapidly towards episode 50, you reminded me a couple of minutes ago. Yes. Got an idea of what we might do going to be a joint decision you know we're going to actually decide on the movie together without giving anything away should we just sort of reveal that we're probably as it's episode 50 celebrate a movie that's going to be 50 years old this year yeah we're going to try and just mark the occasion not with anything massive you know one of the big guns of hmm. british cinema but yeah. something that does you know have a hook into um the you know number of 50 yeah. um it's um you know no reason why we shouldn't commemorate. There's so many films out there that could be brought in for one reason or another, and um, it's just been nice to recognise that you know we've managed to make it this far. We've without made it. Yeah. Either, either of us getting sick of each other. We've survived. So, yeah, week in, week out, talking to each other for two years nearly. <laughs> Incredible. Actually, yeah, because we are two years old as well. So. More congratulations in a few episodes' time, I think. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've got a good idea where we're going to go with the 50th. So um, a little bit of a celebration. Yeah, there's plenty of options, but we, you know, we've got a few ideas that we've narrowed it down to. So yeah. absolutely, mark, mark the occasion. Yeah, the idea, as, as we say, yeah, just for putting up with each other for so long. So <laughs> medals, really. We do, don't we? <laughs> I want to get cracking on today's because you mentioned in Big Guns, this one pretty much has got to be up there, hasn't it? And one of the greatest British movies ever made. Yeah, we don't want to really spoil it too much, but I don't <laughs> think we could hold off um, this review very long before people would realise how much um, we both respect and love this film. Yeah. So um, it'd be be futile for us to try and pretend that we're going to be um, doing this with any kind of objectivity no. um, really this is a film that we both um adore and really and, and the feedback from twitter this weekend when i put you know a few things out i think that's sort of a universal opinion out there i, th- I think there's not many people that don't like this movie so yeah even adam likes it i mean <laughs> and he's, he's not known for liking all the films no, is he, he isn't. Um, what's up with him so it's, it's absolutely <laughs> i i put out you know, just a picture of the DVD from me watching it 
um, last night actually. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you retweeted that, and there, there was a bit quick, of very quickly yeah. there was people saying saying, oh, you know, absolute masterpiece and and such a beautiful film and all these kind of things. And every one of them was right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is an amazing film. Yeah. Um, so um, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's it. <laughs> it's a matter of life and death. 1946. We'll be back straight after this. Mon ami. Evening. I think I keep these for a little. And how are you, my friend? I've never been better. June, wake. She cannot wake. We are talking in space. Not in time. Are you cracked? Look at your watch. It has not moved since you said so charmingly, drink, darling. Nor will it move, nor will anything move until we have finished our little talk. It is only a trick. Who are you? We should have met yesterday at 0410, mon cher. Unfortunately, I missed you. Well, you couldn't have missed me because I wasn't here. Now, who the... I bring you a message from Mr. Trubshaw. Bob? Bob's dead. Oh, yes, he's dead. He says, what ho? Well, that sounds like Trubshaw. But he is dead, isn't he? En effet. But how? Why? Cannon shell. And what should happen to a man who jumps from his aircraft without his parachute? How do you know? But it is I who am telling you, my friend. It is I. Your time was up. But they missed you because of your ridiculous English climate. I am French. But what do you want now? You, my friend. What for? To conduct you. Where to? To the training center. Training for what? For another world. You don't mean... But, my dear friend, that is just what I do mean. A Matter of Life and Death, released in the UK, 15th of December, 1946. In the USA, it was known as Stairway to Heaven, I believe? Yes, and that was the um, that was the title it was under when they did the um, the, the Lux Theatre, or whatever, whichever one it was, who did the radio right. play version as well. Okay. Um, famously directed, written, produced Michael Powell, Emmerich Pressburger. It's our first Powell and Pressburger movie that we've discussed so far on Real Britannia. Starring David Niven, Kim Hunter, Robert Coote is in there, along with a brief appearance of Richard Attenborough, Marius Goring, who was a, a famous, you know, um, famously appeared in many Powell and Pressburger movies. You got Marius Goring, Roger Livesey in there as well, and Bona Colliano. I, I just want to mention Bona Colliano before we go any further. Bona Colliano plays the American pilot. Are, are you aware of Bona Colliano at all? Uh, bits and pieces, yeah, I'm aware. He had a very early death. He um, did. I'm sure it was about 1958. Yeah, about ten years after this. I believe, in like he was 31 or something. Yeah, over, I yeah. Um, um, American. His family were circus performers, and he came over to the UK as part of the performing troupe and ended up staying here and forging a career in British movies as the token American. You know, he was always called upon. 
But more famously, this is the bit, because this has always bugged me, why, why do I know the name Bona Coliano? Ian Jury, reasons to be cheerful. Yeah? Oh, yes. Mentions Bona Coliano. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that, that, I can, yeah, the Luke. Can you hear it? Now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Bonacoli, and he will be cropping up over the next few episodes because he appears in um, quite a few of the British New Wave sort of social realism movies that we're going to be covering over the next few episodes. So look out for him. He's going to probably hit the Hall of Fame. Let me just give you this synopsis and then we'll talk about the Hall of Fame because I'm not sure if anybody has made it in there this week or not. The synopsis, after miraculously surviving a jump from his burning plane, RAF pilot Peter Carter, played by David Niven, encounters the American radio operator Kim Hunter, to whom he has just delivered his dying wishes, and face-to-face on a tranquil English beach, the pair fall in love. When a messenger from the hereafter arrives to correct the bureaucratic error that spared his life, Peter must mount a fierce defence for his right to stay on Earth. Painted by production designer Alfred Jung and cinematographer Jack Cardiff as a rich Technicolor Eden. Climbing a wide staircase to stand trial in a starkly beautiful black and white modernist afterlife. This bit interested me, mate, because I wasn't aware of this. Intended to smooth tensions between the wartime allies Britain and America, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's richly humanistic A Matter of Life and Death traverses time and space to make a case for the transcendent value of love. Yes, it was um, at the behest of the MOD, mm. Ministry of Defence, um, to um, bring together the Americans and the Brits. I think that the the way in which it was done, rather than it being a sort of gung-ho, flag-waving, jingoistic, sort of in-your-face, yep. this it's got the obviously the elements where it's actually showing the differences between the two countries and the cultures and stuff but showing that the ultimately what binds them together is the you know the the love of of their own cultures and their and and freedom and um such values that that's the uniting force so that the it's not just trying to portray this as all being happy families it's actually showing you know we're we're, we're different but we're both equally valuable to each other sort of thing and and the human values like you say of of love um which are cherished by both countries and you know perhaps in slightly different ways i think that's where it brings that unifying force behind it that the mod was obviously happy with even though happy mm. to put it in the hands of of the masters um <laughs> of, of Powell and pressburger but um it could have very easily have been a completely different film with the remit that they were given yeah. and um been something that was just a bit of sort of throwaway propaganda um rubbish really if it hadn't have been done by not just Powell and Pressburger but the, the cast and like you say the cinematography and, and things. It was it was um just the ingredients all bringing together to make a, an absolute masterpiece really that you know, compared to what it could have been. I read somewhere, I think, you know, with British attitudes towards the American GIs that were based over <laughs> here, you know, and it was, was it oversexed, overpaid and over here, wasn't it? I think was the, the famous saying. It was sort of designed to be a sort of a reversal of the GIs taking our, our women, you know. Um, it's the British pilot that falls for the American service lady. And Kim Hunter was suggested, I believe, by Alfred Hitchcock 
That's my understanding. Yeah. yeah, it was some one of one of them. Paolo Pressburger was was talking to um, Hitchcock at some point, and he recommended her. Yeah, yeah. we're going to gush about this movie as as you mentioned earlier. Our love for this movie knows no bounds. But and and the cast as well. Yeah, fantastic cast. Let's quickly just touch upon the Hall of Fame as curator, sir. Yeah. Are there any new inductees? Well, we've uh, we've got a second appearance for Roger Livesey, um, yeah. Because obviously he previously managed to make an appearance. It was for Legal Gentleman, wasn't it? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And we do have an inductee into the Hall of Fame with Robert Coote. Dropshaw, um, yeah, yeah. Because he was Legal Gentleman and Theatre of Blood. <gasps> so he was. Yeah. So he was. Um, He's the one so that is... dies in the vat of wine, isn't he? I believe so, yeah. I think that's him, my yeah. Memory. Yeah. So that's a third appearance for him. He's the only person who is new into the Hall of Fame. Obviously, we've got, like, a, a fourth appearance for um, Dickie Attenborough. A fleeting um, fourth appearance, yeah. Very fleeting, but he's there. And um, obviously, we've got about, I don't it must be, uh, he must have added about a dozen appearances now for um, Bombardier Billy uh, <laughs> is it Bombardier Billy Wells? I can't remember. Was he forty-five to fifty-five? If it is, it is Bombardier Billy Wells. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it. I think I managed to work out. Yeah, it was. He's been in, in too many now to count. Um, We're going to have to so, check it out just for completion's sake, mate. I'm going to go back and dig that info out yeah, for you. Dig yeah. that information out. But yes. Um, so the only new inductee um, is Robert Coote. Excellent. So that's another. Welcome addition to the Village Hall of Fame. He's great in this. Everybody's great in this movie. How many times have you seen this? I mean, we ask this question every time. Just get a bit of background on our personal sort of history of this. You've seen this a fair few times. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I first saw it when I was about eight or nine. All oh, right, okay. Yep. So it was very early on I saw it, and it sort of stuck with me as a film that I you know, went back to as you say, mostly when it happened to be shown on a, a rainy bank holiday and yeah. it would it would be on and I'd go, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll watch that. Um, and then there was a gap when I really didn't return to it because I was too busy investigating new films. Of course. Yeah. It wasn't until I think there was a gap of probably several years of me not watching it um, up until when me and Smokey reviewed it on um, HOM, yeah. uh, our podcast, uh, so I think I've seen it. It might just, it might be in the double figures, but only just. Cool. Okay, probably so. pretty much the same as me. I watched it early teens, watched it quite regularly over the course of like 15, 20 years possibly. But this is my first viewing. I thought it's my first viewing in a long, long time, but I checked on Letterboxd. I've watched it in the, in the past six years. So this is t- two viewings in about five or six years for me. Previously, I would have watched it once a year, quite quite regularly. Uh, it, it just captured me at an early age. I think the thing that grabs you immediately on this film is the colour, the use of Technicolor, and obviously the the reversal of the Wizard of Oz trick. That you know the Earth scenes are in colour and heavens in black and white, which is the opposite to the Wizard of Oz. But immediately, yeah. it's just. Wow, where is this? Because it starts off in the Lancaster Bomber, doesn't it? It, it actually starts off, bang, you're, you're into the story straight away. There's no build-up to this whatsoever. Yeah, there's, there's no scene setting um, or anything. It, it's just straight away into, into the action. And 
critical action as well, which is, you know, this is the, the, the pinhead on which everything is turning. Exactly. And it becomes not a story of love at first sight. It's like love before first sight, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's incredible to, to sort of suggest this, but it is a bit far-fetched, obviously. But the pair fall in love over the course of a radio conversation. Immediately. Yeah, over over the airways, and obviously mm. I can understand that with with yourself. Mm. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, this is this is you know, and that's a it's actually comes up within the plot about the fact that he, he tries um, his um, his prosecutor, as it were, tries to um, say that he beguiled her with a smile to in order to get her to fall in love with him, and yeah. um, you know, he, he replies, "Well, no, we fell in love before we'd even set eyes on each exactly. other." So, yeah. um, so that works in in his favour. But absolutely, what you're saying about the technical is such a great device of how it's used to. I suppose it's trying to indicate that um, people should feel more more in tune with the alive bit rather than seeing the the the, the afterlife bit as being something to aspire to mm. really and to to be cherishing the the vibrancy and colour of what being alive is about, which is what he's trying to, to do as a character. Yeah. Actually just hold on to that that life. And there's a bit more of an austerity to the afterlife. Very stark, um, and, isn't and, it? Clinical, almost. Yeah, and I did pick up for the first time ever. Yeah. Watching it, I picked up. There's a, there's a line in it in um, the the Frenchman mm. who's um, in heaven, who's he's a bit adversarial with him. Mm. Um, he's he says a line, and I wrote it down. Yep. That's the line that he says. One is starred for technical of up here. He does. He actually and mentions it. I was like, it. oh, that's clever. That's clever. Oh. It is mentioned. Marius Goring says that. Yeah. That, that's, it, that's the immediate thing that you notice. You know, Jack Cardiff cinematography is his first movie, I think, behind the camera before he was a, a technician, you know, in another field in, in movie making. But this is his first foray into wielding the camera. And he had a career that just went on forever, didn't he? I think he's still making movies up till fairly recently. It's quite famous ones, if I if I remember. Let me just have a look. Yeah, I mean, he did things like Vikings and Conan and things like this, as well as things like Black Narcissus and I'm trying to remember what else he did off the top of my head. He's he had an incredible career, and you can see that this you know springboard of this film and his talent being exhibited in this film was amazing to be perfectly honest his his um use of light and the angles he shoots from although they, they weren't necessarily his own invention it could be you know things that he's taken from elsewhere his yeah. use of it was incredibly inventive within this film to actually just get the best from every shot really yeah um so massive respect to him that his his part in this film you know, we don't always talk about cinematographers um, no. by name, at least. Um, but this time, it absolutely deserves to be recognised as one of the stars of this film. There's not many movies where it does happen. We we do mention them occasionally. Where you can on- honestly say that every shot is perfect. There is you can see the the care and the attention to detail of setting up each particular scene and each particular shot. It, I don't know if it was storyboarded and, and written out that way or drawn out that way, but you could just 
take a take a snapshot of any second of this movie and it would just look beautiful whether it's a color sequence or a black and white sequence stunning stuff absolutely stunning stuff there you, yeah. the, you know yeah. he, he would go on to be cinematographer on the african queen barefoot contessa war and peace prince and the showgirl yeah massive massive movies so and still this stands out as been a, a highlight of his career i think so because, as you said, he will do a few more Powell and Pressburgers. He'll do Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, that might be the pinnacle, actually. Not too sure. So he will hit the Hall of Fame eventually, because we're going to obviously do the rest of the Powell and Pressburgers as we get to it. Um, <laughs> 1985, he was cinematographer on Rambo, First Blood, Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see how there's the you know comparable shots that he used in this. We probably reused a certain amount. I mean, I, I seem to remember in in Rambo yeah. um, the famous uh, table tennis scene. There was uh, yes. <laughs> Again, also there's little tricks like that. One that stands out particularly for me is the view from inside David Niven's eyeball, and the eyelid is closing. Yes. You know, that that stood out for me this time. I'd forgotten about that. And one of the big things that I noticed this time was I sort of brushed over it previous, you know, previously watching the movie. But it's the reaction of Roger Livesey and Kim Hunter to David Niven as he's having what they think are hallucinations. You know, they're, they're seriously thinking that he has got some form of brain damage. That is exactly what's happening. And I'd never yeah, really focused on that before. Uh, yeah, it's it's left. I mean, you know, that was something I didn't pick up on until until my watches um, into you know, so probably after my teens. It you know, definitely during my teens and my preteens when I watched it, I didn't pick up on the aspect that they so much that they were thinking that it was just um, brain damage that was causing mm. him to have these visions and hallucinations and other. Although it still is left open to to question, um, I think with particularly June's reaction to to him, there's there's a few bits in there where she's she does have a few doubts about whether actually there is more to it than just brain yeah. damage because she questions that. But I do think that the that that element of question and it being down to just a medical trauma wasn't something I I picked up on a. You know, until I was after my teens watching mm, it, yeah, um, and it's done incredibly well. And I think that rather than just this being um, portrayed as being somebody's imagination, that slight question mark over whether this is actually a reality or not, it, it ties into to other things. Obviously, I mean, there's the the big one from around the same time was "It's a Wonderful Life," of course, um, before, yeah. Which was, you know, in a, sim- a very similar vein to the, to the topics of this of film. Was it the same year? Year before, I think. Uh, year before. Life is 46. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, um, no, he's oh, 40, this is 46, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So he's the same year. Yeah. Same year then. I mean, obviously, that's a theme that maybe it's, it's again, trying to have the watching public um, that have a bit more of a sense of, of comfort with the afterlife, considering the amount of death that there'd been for um, five years or so beforehand. But I think that this, you know, that sort of um, question mark over whether these are hallucinations or 
whether they're brain damage or whether there is more to it of a, a sort of metaphysical um, nature. I mean, that's been carried on in more recent times, just things like life on Mars yeah, and, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And that, that, so it's it's kind of a bit more of a of a theme that has been expand, you know, just picked up on later by people. But this was very much this and a wonderful life. It is, it's, I think it's a theme that is very well explored, and this has shown that as a trope mm-hmm. of that idea, the veil between sort of the afterlife or the other world and and our own, it's it needs to be. Um, done correctly for it to actually be a, a worthwhile thing. Mm. Though I think that there is, there's a, there is a, a nod in this film to it's uh, Shakespeare, isn't it? That they're they're doing um, the play of um, a Midsummer Night's Dream, and yeah. that's about that's about the same kind of theme, isn't of it? Course, about, yeah. I, if I remember correctly. So they've given that a nod that perhaps was an influence on them and then they've been an influence on other people with this, about that veil between the reality and and otherworldliness. Um, and that's why they're, they're rehearsing that choice of play yeah. um, in the actual film. So that's another just a little, uh, you know, little thing that's, that's thrown in there. There's more to this almost, than meets the eye. Yeah, it's almost yeah. as if it's just, a, 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 you know, it's something that's a detail that maybe isn't important but is there for, for a reason. And it's it's kind of... I always go on about Back to the Future that there's nothing in there that's a, a that's really it's a, a wasted shot or a wasted bit of dialogue. It's all there for a purpose as far as the plot or setting up the characters or something other. And this, the more I'm, I'm looking at it, the more I'm, I'm picking out little bits and pieces all the time. Going, that's there for a reason. That's not just there just because they've just picked a random play for them to be rehearsing. It's actually there specifically for. For a reason as well. So, interesting. You mentioned Shakespeare, right? There's um, Peter Bradshaw, the Guardian film reviewer, did quite an extensive review of the movie because they re-released it in cinemas 2017 to celebrate the anniversary. And I've literally this has just jumped off the page at me here. Perhaps the most extraordinary moment comes when Peter encounters a naked young goat herd on the beach. That that always sits a bit funny with me. This particular scene. It is this figure, like someone from a late Shakespeare play, such as The Tempest, who tells Peter that he's back on Earth. Interesting. So there may be something in what you're saying here, that everything seems to be interlinked. Everything's there for a reason, as as you quite rightly point out. But it's it's just the layers of it. You don't don't have to think about this film. You don't have to examine the underbelly of it to to, to think there's something hidden within the movie. It's just telling a very very good story very well but if you wanted to examine it i'm sure we could find so many different things in here that relate you know as you say to, to certain other bits i think the main thing that holds this together and you've sort of touched on this earlier as well mate is the extraordinary performances of all the cast they're faultless yes. absolutely faultless every single one i couldn't couldn't find anything to criticize Every single performance. I mean, let's look at the two leads. We've got David Niven, the quintessential British gent, basically. You yeah. know, you can you can see him as a squadron leader. You know he's a pilot. That's so convincing. And and it is, despite the fact that the whole love story is slightly unbelievable, the way it all happens, 
the interaction between him and Kim Hunter make it believable, I think, because how how well they actually come across on screen. Yeah, they sell it absolutely. They sell it without without any doubt. You, you you're convinced that this has been some kind of otherworldly um, falling in love that you know was um, unavoidable in a way. Although the the plot points out that it, it could have you know very well not happened, but it's it's it is like an eternal love that in the truest sense mm. um, that that is just exposed there and, and not just in a not just in a, in a in a cliche saccharine way it's it's done with with real heart oh, and God, yeah. um as, as a genuine thing that you you feel that the the heartbreak of them um and even to the point where you know part of it is that they're willing to give up their lives um for each other rather than it just being that they're you know they're wanting to have the the good parts of, of being in love uh roger livesey i think mentions in the defense he says something about on earth nothing is stronger than love that's the crux of his you know defense that you know he needs to be given a second chance because of what's actually happened to them for, through their mistake their bureaucratic error this is this has come about this whole situation and as i say it's totally believable you can Kim Hunter is just like so warm, you know. It's and did you notice, like, they're talking about Jack Cardiff, that the whole lighting of that initial sequence, where obviously you've got the Lancaster bomber going down in flames and all that lot, but when you cut back to the radio room, there's nobody else in there, but it's got this really deep red hue to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the the sort of if I remember correctly, the, the the lamps shining down in front of her to what she's needing to see, and, yeah. and just that that putting a kind of a, a glow on her face, yes. but the rest of her had been been in shadow. That's kind of the angel coming out of darkness to sort of be his uh, his guide. His guide almost, home, if you want, yeah. If you, yeah. If you want to get into a kind of more uh, romanticism <laughs> and 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 things of it, if you want to start talking those terms, be may sound pretentious but that it, it is that the lighting as you say it's just giving that that um symbolism yeah and it's not heavy like you say i mean you can go through the, watching this film the entire thing and just take it as it is and it's still a fantastic film but there's the symbolism in there that either consciously or, or subconsciously you might notice if you look and it's it, it just lifts it absolutely every, every scene yeah, I've just suddenly remembered another link to It's a Wonderful Life. Before we actually see the Lancaster bomber at the beginning, there's a sequence set in space. Yes. Which is how Wonderful Life opens. With the two with the angels, angels, the stars. Talking, the two, yeah. two clouds of each other, yeah. yeah. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, there's, yeah there's, lots of, there's lots of that in there. And I think that, you know, for all, it probably would be done different these days. They've, they've got the... The, you know the people having to stand deathly still while uh, you know time stops and um, you know there's there's very little sort of blinking or, or or sort of wavering of those people who are being still they've, they've done it with great technical expertise on that but this um the sound that's what oh that was something yeah in those in those scenes mm. where the time stops yeah. The contrast of, of, of su the sudden deathly silence of there being no other sound whatsoever yeah. is so, you know, pin drop. 
it really does emphasize this time stop thing and i think that's incredibly clever as well though you know that they somehow they've managed to get across rather than just rather than just there not being some sounds on they've actually got across somehow an, an absence of sound and i don't know how they've how they've done that whether they just isolated um the sounds of them, them talking or whatever and they took everything else out as background noise that you might subconsciously hear i don't know but that's that's a great effect that they've done. Yeah, we're sort of well. focusing on the cinematography, but it's it's just everything, isn't it? It's it's the sound, the script, the sound, the acting, the cinematography. Everything is is just so well thought out and so prepared. It's a set building as well with yeah. all, with that massive the staircase um, staircase moving. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you say you just keep moving from one fantastic element of it to another because these special effects are quite important it's that, that escalator that you know the moving staircase it, it took three months to build and it's obviously not the full size but it cost three three thousand pounds which is a lot of money obviously back then and here's a bit of technical sort of background to it it had a hundred hundred and six steps each 20 feet wide and was driven by a 12 horsepower engine um, and it was nicknamed Ethel. Operation Ethel was the engineers who constructed around. <laughs> well, um, they, could, they could do with that at King Cross Station sometimes well, to get people in and out, eh? It was actually overseen, the construction, by the London Passenger Transport Board. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, then. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Here we go. I'm just, I've just found some trivia. I'm just going to rattle some of these off for you, mate. We're talking about, you know, the neurological condition of David Niven and how it's perceived by those around him, thinking, you know, there's something seriously unwell with him. It was inspired from a semi-autobiographical novel called A Journey Round My Skull. And what happened was Pressburger had done some further research in the British Library and Michael Powell's brother-in-law, who was a plastic surgeon, Dr Joe Reedy, also contributed to some of the medical uh, authenticity, basically. So you can see that a great deal of attention has been paid to every single aspect of this movie, as we say. It's the first movie to be presented as a royal performance, royal command performance. Oh, right, having its premiere in front of royalty. You yeah, you know, that that's oh, a thing right, that happens yeah, every year. Yeah. There's one particular movie, isn't there, that's selected. Yeah, yeah. This was the first one. Oh. Week before Christmas, and it was George VI and the Queen Mother. Yeah. And this is interesting. We're going to go back to some of these characters because we haven't really touched on sort of Roger Livesey here or, or Raymond Massey. David Niven and Raymond Massey both died on the same day, July the 29th, 1983. Spooky. Wow. Imagine them standing next to each other on that, <laughs> on that staircase. staircase going upwards. <laughs> That's an incredible piece of trivia. Let's, t- let's talk Roger let's Livesey. Talk about the characters, yeah. Yeah, Roger about the Livesey. Characters. So Roger Livesey, yeah. Who is, you know, he's, he's a rival as a star in this film, really, oh, considering his, his role. He's and such a great actor. Yeah. I love, I love his, his part in this. Just his understanding, his empathy, but also his intelligence and his logic. You know, I'd want him fighting in my corner. I'd have Roger Livesey any time based on this performance, you know. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's humour, there's empathy, there's um, intelligence... There's uh, logic. There's there's all you'd want there from somebody who's who's going to be fighting your corner, and his his performance of it, it's fantastic. But yes, he's he's he plays the doctor that's a friend of of June's, 
that um, steps in to uh, assess and yeah. help um, the our protagonist in this. And um, yeah, he's, he's a perfect sort of wingman and and support for for both of them. To be yeah. perfectly honest. And his death always gets me by surprise every time I watch the film. I forget that he dies. I forget he actually has to go up to heaven to mount his defence. The thing that surprises me is is his stiff upper lip Britishness about it. There's no <laughs> sort of because you know he it, 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 it dies unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, not to spoil it for people, you know, spoilers or anything. No, but, no. And um, he, there's no sort of shock. There's not even an initial shock from him of like what, what the hell it's just like he's he's just going right well I'm dead now let's I'm make the most of it <laughs> I'm going to go straight back into helping you and I mean I don't know whether the 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 purposefully made it so that they had no um, family entanglements um, in the, his life um, didn't have a wife or kids or anything so that him dying I suppose meant that it was there was less of him sort of thinking about the, you know his, his family that he'd left behind and um, all that kind of stuff so his focus could switch straight away and it does stri- switch straight to um, you know back to helping David Niven's character of, right well I was trying to uh, help you with your brain injury now I'm <laughs> going to switch over and completely accept that um, what you were saying was true and um, right here I am and I'm going to defend you <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing really and but you know it's, when you, you speak about it like we are mm. it sounds sounds completely implausible and, and oh, ridiculous God, yeah. but in the actual film it just works it just makes sense and the bit yeah. I like and this really again stood out for me when I watched this the other night I love the bit when he realises he's there you know mounting his defence in front of this massive amphitheatre of, of celestial people, you know. And he realises that the only way he's going to win this, because he's up against, an, you know, an equally educated prosecutor, played by Raymond mm. Massey, is to get June there. So there's this marvellous sequence where June is actually she put to sleep, isn't she, I think, and she comes up to heaven. And he just says, do you trust me? Whatever I, you know, just go with what I'm going to go with here. And he says, would you take his place? And she says, like, you know, in a heartbeat, without question. And that's it. The look on, you know, Raymond Massey's face and all the people watching there are like, he's won this. He's bloody got it. You know? Yeah. And it's like David Niven says, you know, you know asked, would you would you die for her? And he's saying, yes, I would. Yeah. But I'd rather live for her. Yeah. Which is, you know, the better, you'd rather somebody lived for you rather than die for you. Exactly. But, Absolutely, and capturing capturing her tear, um, even yes. though time is stopped, she still she still loves him enough that even outside of the the boundaries of time, she still has a tear seeing him in, on the operating table, and they capture that as as evidence as well. That's it. Um, mm. It's it's amazing, and like you say, I mean, you know, mentioning uh, again, you've got as a supporting character almost with Raymond Massey, but he's you know, he he does play a, a a major role in this film and, and does it incredibly well. You know, he's yeah. got the pomposity of of somebody who's you know got the understandable um, anti-British colonialism um, <laughs> is aspect he the to it. First American to be shot by a British bullet or something is that is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the arguments he's making and the the back and forth between him and Roger Livesey, you know, it's it's uh, it's worthy of some of the best 
courtroom dramas you'll see on screen. I think so. I think so in a in a very different way. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's almost like the setting again. The special effects used. To, to show the scale of it. You don't really appreciate the scale of it until the, the camera pans back and you can see this huge amphitheatre. But it's a bit like, um, oh, what's the Fritz Lang movie? Metropolis. You know, that sort of architecture. It's the um, austere sort of modernist, mm. um, which, you know, can fall into a, a, a clean, as we know from things like Doctor Who and things, that mm. can fall into a, a, a sort of a clean paradise or um, a, a hell hellscape of monotony depending on you know what's going on um and this is it it's 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 the pure it's meant to have the purity of 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 heaven as it were but Mm. um you know as you say it's it's devoid of of the color of life and the vibrancy of life and that's the point it's trying to make and as you say the epic scale of it as well with that amphitheater that's you know the the size of london it's Um, huge it just works doesn't it and yeah you've just reminded me as well there's a point where Roger Livesey demands the jury to be changed because he thinks they're going to be biased. Yes. And then that almost backfires, doesn't it? Because then <laughs> he's got this huge cross-section of, of, of new jurors that appear. But in effect, they're all American. You know? Yeah, the, it's, that's, yeah. I think, again, that's, that's kind of tying in with this, um, this this idea that they were trying to have with the Ministry of Defence as a as a propaganda piece, or at yeah. least as a message piece to have about unity, it's pointing out that you know, with the exception of having people from the the Axis powers, mm-hmm. um, it's got including a Russian and a Chinese in there um, people, yes, um, a, a Chinese man and a, a Russian man who were obviously on the side of the Allies at the time of the of the war. They were um, so it's got them in to show that you know the America is made up of, of people from elsewhere, with the exception of, of those who were already there when all the colonials turned up. But um, they and that that but it replaces like a, an Irishman or an Indian or, or somebody from from China yeah. with somebody who is a, a, an American of Chinese descent exactly. or of Indian descent or Irish descent. And you know it's okay. It's a stereotype to have the Irish police, you know, Irish <laughs> yeah, York cop, yeah, yeah. But um, but in a way, it could that could backfire. But obviously, <laughs> he's already put the um, the caveat in there that if he wants, you know, if he has somebody who who's been sort of wronged to by the British, then he's somebody who's had a you know something right to them by the mm. British. And if somebody can't, but if somebody somebody who can only remember a hundred years back, I want somebody who can um, only see a hundred years forward. Yes, um, good line. Yeah. Is, a, is a line, and it, so he, in in some ways, like you say, you think, oh, this has backfired. They've gone and, and played a trick on you <laughs> here, and and you're in a worse situation as as Roger Livesey's character. Yeah. But in actual fact, it as it pans out, that's to his advantage. It, it's it's that look that Raymond Massey sort of gives him, he's like, yeah, that sort of smug look that I've got you here. And uh, and then Roger Livesey sort of goes, ah, okay, let's, uh, let's make the best of what I've got here then. And obviously, you know, he uses, you know, the part of Kim Hunter to come up, up to heaven to, you know, to be the crux of his defense. For me, this movie, I'm, I'm confident in saying this is a top 10 movie for me. 
and I would encourage absolutely anybody who has not seen it to at least give it a go because it is a masterclass in not only acting and the cinematography but just as perfect filmmaking in as, as a whole I think there's nothing I can fault with this movie whatsoever now, if you, if you're a cinephile, mm. this is absolutely one that um, it's essential, isn't it? That it's essential. You see, yes, oh. absolutely. That's the word essential. Yeah, because uh, it, it is a masterpiece and it's a masterclass as well of of how to what what they did was they didn't have you know special effects and the the industrial light and magic to be oh. um, to be making up for for other things. And this you know this is has got the plot and the cinematography and the acting and the inventiveness with the um, the actual um, script it is all there yeah. to, to just give people who are interested in cinema a, just an absolute guide of how to have a masterpiece but you're right that this this film is I, I normally when I'm, I'm you know obviously my system of grading is this my own strange one where I'm recommending people what what vehicle or medium to see it in. Yeah. And this is one that, this has got such a universal appeal. My caveat that I usually have of, you know, if you think this is going to be your kind of thing, then, or if you, you know, unless yeah. you think it's not going to be your kind of thing. This film, I can't imagine anybody who this wouldn't be something that you could enjoy. It's got, it's got that universal appeal that, you know, children i mean i enjoyed it as a child yes. um and then as an adult you can pick more out of it yeah you can see it as i mean you look you look at an imdb and it's vir- it, it, it's genre that it's got listed under it mm. it's got like about seven different <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's a it's a co- it's got comedy in it because it does have bits you laugh at yes. in this film it's not a dour must emphasize that it's not a dour series you know a no, serious it's positive, drama isn't film. It? yeah it's, it's got it's positive it's got light in it it's got but it's it is a drama it's got it's got a certain amount element of sort of fantasy sci-fi in there. Obviously, it's got the war element. It's rom- It's a romance film, and and along with the the comedy bits in there. Um, I think the only thing that it doesn't tick the box of is a horror. But otherwise, yeah. otherwise it ticks every other genre Pretty box. I think, much. as far as I can I can tell, because it, it, it is a film that I, as I say, I enjoyed as a film, as, as a as a kid, yeah. I enjoyed it, and um, it can be enjoyed by the whole family. It's got the universal appeal that. Um, and because of the cinematography and the colour and everything else, this is one that it will only be enhanced by people taking the opportunity to see it on the big screen. I think so. And I've, yeah. I've never had the opportunity to, but I would certainly grasp it with both hands if I did have the opportunity to see it on the big yeah. screen. Because, and it, that wouldn't be like some films that have got a, a sort of communal watching experience where you all want to, to sort of sit there and, and appreciate which you know I can see with some of the things like Back to the Future and, and such yeah. like, but I think this is just because even sat on your own watching it on a big screen, you know, in fact with my experience of not liking going to the cinema because of other people, that'd be better for me. Yeah. Um, but seeing it on a seeing it on a big screen would would just give you so much more out of it. Oh, I, I watched you, it on my projector, so it was the biggest format I'd seen this movie, and previously I'd only ever seen it on the TV. 
And as the years have gone by, obviously the TVs have got bigger and bigger. You know, probably my first screening was probably you know, black and white portable, so I didn't actually get the benefit of the transition. The t- yeah, so I didn't actually <laughs> probably didn't get that. But I can't it's remember. Like watching a snooker in black and white. Exactly, ones. and I'm color blind anyway. So you know, color color film was always bugging me up anyway at one point. Um, but last night, sorry, Friday night, I watched it on the projector. So that, that was the biggest viewing experience I'd had of this movie up to this point, and it was like watching it for the first time. You know, there was things in there like you. You've spotted it on your 10th, 11th viewing. You've spotted things in there that you hadn't seen previously, which I think is a mark of a great movie. No matter how familiar you think you are with one of your favourite films, if you can still find something in there on a multiple viewing, there's there's got to be some good in that film. There's got to be, you know, it's got to be worth watching. And it isn't just a one-off. Powell and Pressburger weren't just a one-trick pony, you know, because after this, we're going to get Black Narcissus and the Red Shoes. Charlie and I reviewed the Red Shoes two, three years ago on the Stinking Paws podcast. And like this, we just enthused over it. And it was pretty much the cinematography that got us, because we said, how can us two grown straight men be gushing over a film made in the late 40s about ballet? You know, and it just <laughs> it just floored us. Uh, again, masterpiece is is another word. Yeah. You know, re- the, yeah. quite quite readily used for the red shoes. If you've not seen Black Narcissus, fantastic. Deborah Carr again, the Jack Cardiff cinematography, the special effects that are in there as well. <sighs> Powell and Pressburg. We we've got to go back. We've got to do some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the, I think this one is a lot more accessible and um, enjoyable, and has more universal appeal than maybe yeah. um, Red Shoes, possibly. Colonel, Colonel, Colonel Blimp. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. That was before, wasn't it? Um, Blimp. Yeah. yeah, and I mean that's to be perfectly honest. That film um, is a is, is a longer film as mm. well. Yeah, um, and that's something actually just to mention about this that. Um, Every time I watch it, it feels shorter and shorter. Um, because when I think I first watched it, obviously, you know, as a child, it just fills up your entire afternoon. It feels like watching a, a, any any old film. Yeah. But um, this, I for some reason, I had it in my head that it was over. It was just over two hours long, and it's not. It's it's like an hour and forty five or something an hour like and forty that, yeah. or something. Like that. Yeah. But um, so it doesn't it doesn't in any way drag any of the bits. The, you know, the this, the different parts of it. Um, you know, done with in in a good space of time that doesn't um, elongate it for without reason. Yeah. And this is just an enjoyable film from start to finish. And you get to the end of it, and you look and think, oh, that you know, that didn't <laughs> that didn't feel like a drag. That felt just a really um, enjoyable way to hmm. spend that hour and a bit, you know, sort of thing. Um, Whereas Colonel Blimp is a bit more a bit more elongated. Yeah. So, um, but absolutely, Powell and Pressburger. There's there's so much in there. Different um, films that they did. It's certainly not one trick ponies. Certainly, um, masters of their craft that um, have other masterpieces in their their canon. Definitely, you know, very important uh, players in the whole of not just British cinema but cinema history in general you know very very important let's leave it there mate because we could probably go on for hours talking about this and we will refer back to this 
obviously when we cover more Powell and Pressburg or even David Niven movies, you know, we're going to certainly be using this as a benchmark along the way. Let's take a break. We'll be back with what we're watching next time and it'll be your choice. Okay, Stephen, it's time for my favourite part of the show. The anticipation, waiting to hear what you've got lined up for me. Now, over the past nearly 50 episodes, we've covered every genre, every era. Where are we going this time, mate? Well, obviously this film that we've just done has been quite a a poignant film. It's been a a big film that's got a, a lot of, um, credibility within um, cinema and the way it actually comes across as having such great performances and, and incredibly well crafted and stuff. One thing it didn't do, um, particularly you know, in in uh, as a focus, um, it wasn't a kids film. <laughs> okay. Um, so we, we're going for one of the films I particularly enjoyed as a child, mm. um, as a kids film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from 1981. Yeah. Um, it does have a, a, a kind of otherworldly aspect to it, yeah. um, but not in the sense of, of heaven, but more in the sense of time travel, um, because um, this is uh, the Time Bandits. <gasps> Handmade films again. Yeah. <laughs> I very nearly chose that a few weeks back for you, um, and I very nearly watched it last week. I was going to put it on. Oh, my God. Um so we're talking now, Sean Connery yes. makes, a, makes a cameo in it, obviously. Catherine Hellman, who passed away a few months back, she's in it with Peter Vaughan, who also died recently. Yeah, um, Ian, Ian Holm. Ian Holm, yeah. You've got, isn't he Napoleon? He is, he yeah. He is, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and uh, David Warner, uh, Peter Vaughan. That mm, whole Kenny Baker, David Rappaport, of course, you know, it's, yeah. it's got that whole um, sequence. Jim Broadbent, yeah, in hell. That bit, I loved the interaction between David Warner and his minions. I love that. Yes, oh, I'm so looking forward to this one. It, I, I could do with a laugh. Put it that way. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, there was funny, funny lines in uh, Amount of Life and Death, but um, this. This is really the, the focal oh, point of this film is humour. I'm um, I'm researching the the British New Wave cinema sort of things that we're going to be covering, and it can be quite depressing at times. You know, yeah. so <laughs> I need to watch a bit of Time Bandits. Well, Did, I figured that this, you know, the way that the scheduling was working of how far ahead we are, I was yeah. thinking this will probably, you know, sit well within the um, the the school holidays. Um, Will be, yeah. So yeah. I was thinking, you know, if 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 there are anybody, any people out there who are actually um, watching the films um, that we are reviewing, mm. then you know, Perfect if they if they're, if they're stuck at home with their kids during the summer holidays, um, then they can at least it's something they can watch with their kids rather than having to wait until they've they've got something else to do. Can't go so. wrong. Early Terry Gilliam, isn't it, director? Yes. And a lot of the Monty Python team, obviously. Uh, making John Cleese is Robin Hood, isn't he? Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> oh, I could probably sit here and review that movie with you without watching it. Same as you. Yeah. Yeah. Again, but one we'll, that I uh... watched a lot of times. 
<laughs> looking forward to that, mate. Absolutely yeah. looking forward to that. Thank you for being there today, sir. No, thank you for having me on. Yeah, fine, fine uh, movie once again. One of the well, finest, yeah. I think so. We'll be back very soon. Cheers, matey. See you later. Take care. Absolute shah. Positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. British hand up, sir.